Well, if you've got your Bible, uh, head to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, we've been walking through a series in the book of Genesis, and if you've been with us over the past two weeks, I'm sure you're coming in this morning uh, hoping for some reprieve, uh, hoping that we don't have another story about somebody just absolutely blowing it or somebody getting blown up in judgment because of how they've blown it. And I I wish I could tell you that that's the case, uh, but unfortunately it's not. Father Abraham wants to get in on the action as well. He wants to do some sin of his own, Uh, And so we have part two, the remix of Abraham pimping out his wife, uh, lying about her and saying that she is his sister right on the doorstep uh, of these promises being fulfilled by God. And so a pretty crazy story once again, but let's look at this story together and see what God might have to say to us in it. Genesis 20, we're going to read through the entire chapter, starting in verse one, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Terrifying, right? Uh, You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated." Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord, right? Uh, Well, two big tracks, two big themes I see kind of running together in this passage, the fear of man 
and the faithfulness of God. We see Abraham's fear of man that he puts on display, and then we see God's faithfulness to him in and through in spite, uh, even in the midst of that. And so what we're going to do together this morning is we're going to look first, kind of walk through the text first from the vantage point of Abraham, seeing how he puts this fear of man on display and what that might have to say to us. And then we'll come back around and just see the faithfulness of God to Abraham in spite of that all throughout. And so as the text begins, Abraham obviously does again what he did in chapter 12 and pimps out his wife to another man, lies about her, says that she is his sister. And this time he doesn't even give her an explanation and a reason. Uh, They just roll into this town. He's like, hey, she's my sister. She's fair game. Whoever wants her, she's yours. And, And I think we can stop for a second and just acknowledge that this is wild, right? Like, how do you do this twice? How do you do this again? And it's not just that Abraham does it again, it's even worse this time. It's like a hundred times worse this time, because when Abraham first did this in chapter 12 in Egypt, God had only just appeared to him for the first time and given him these promises. But ever since then, Abraham's life has just been a consistent testimony of God's faithfulness and kindness to him over and over. I mean, God has protected him and provided for him every step of the way. He's made a covenant with him. He's entered into relationship and friendship with him. He's continually reiterated these promises to him. And even when Abraham screwed up, when he screwed up in Egypt and when he screwed up with Hagar, God did not quit on him. And just right before this, God has said that that next year, one year from now, him and Sarah would be having a son. Like, it it has a due date. It has a time stamp. These promises are about to be fulfilled. Abraham is on the doorstep. I mean, this would be like you going to a concert to see your favorite band that's headlining, sitting through all the kind of local garage band opening act, and then by the time the headliner comes out, you're just like, ah, I'm tired. I think I'll just go home. Like, why would you do that? Why would you sit through all of those opening acts just to get to your favorite band and decide, no, I'm not going to do this? Like, why would you do that when you're right there? You're right there. But even though Abraham is right there on the doorstep, he still does this, completely putting the promises of God in jeopardy. Like, if, if Abimelech takes Sarah and sleeps with her and impregnates her, like, this is over. The promises of God are all for nothing. But of course, Abraham's not thinking about that at all, right? Like, he's not concerned that he's putting the promises of God in jeopardy. He's not concerned uh, about his own wife's safety and well-being. He's just concerned about his own. This is all that he cares about. He, he's not thinking of this at all. And, and the good news is that we don't actually have to wonder why he's making this decision and why he's doing this, because he actually tells us. Uh, when God comes to Abimelech in the dream and is like, hey, here's what's going on. You're a dead man if you don't change this. Abimelech comes to Abraham and he's like, are you serious, bro? Why did you do that to me? You absolutely hung me out to dry. Did you not see what God just did to Sodom and Gomorrah? I almost got the flaming asphalt treatment because of you. Why would you do this to me? And look at what Abraham says in verse 11 again. He says, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. 
So what Abraham is doing here is projecting, right? Because he thinks, oh, these are just godless pagans. There's no fear of God at all in this place. And so I've got to manipulate. I've got to manage. I've got to lie and scheme to make sure that this situation works out well for me because we're not in church anymore. This is the real world. You've got to use some street smarts. You've got to have some common sense here. But, but the irony in all of this is there is fear of God in this place. Like, we'll, we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but Abimelech really comes off in this story looking morally better than Abraham, does he not? The reality is that it's Abraham who has no fear of God in this story. Abraham is being driven by what the Bible calls the fear of man. Uh, what you fear is what you give the most weight to in your life. It's what drives your decision-making. It's the standard by which you judge and evaluate everything else in your life. It's the person that you won't cross, the person whose approval you live for, the thing that you'll do whatever it takes to keep and not lose. Like, that's what the fear of man is. I think uh, Ed Welch sums up the distinction perfectly in the title of a book that he wrote on this subject uh, that I'd really recommend to you. It's incredibly, incredibly helpful on this, but his book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is small. Like, that's what's going on here. When people and their opinions of you and what they think of you and their responses to you and whether or not they approve of you is uppermost in your thoughts and your heart and your affection, and it matters more to you than what God says about you or what God is doing for you or whether or not God approves of you, that's when you know you fear man more than you fear God. When people are big and God is small in your life, you fear man more than you fear God. And this is what Abraham is doing here, right? He's not thinking, oh, well, when I screwed this up last time, God protected me even in the midst of this. Surely he can do that again. No, he's thinking, these godless pagans are going to kill me to have my wife. So I've got to lie. I've got to cover up. I've got to scheme. I've got to take things into my own hands. Uh, otherwise, this is not going to work out for me. Like, this is all that Abraham cares about. And so, we, we see this fear of man in Abraham's life playing out in this selfish desire for security and comfort and safety. Like the promises of God are not a concern to him. He's not concerned about his wife's own safety and well-being. He's just concerned about his own. Like it, it doesn't matter what happens to her as long as he comes out alive in this, right? And so he'll lie, he'll cover over, he'll manipulate, he'll give up his wife to another man because he just does not trust God. God's word does not have the weight in his life that the fear of man does. He fears man. And, and, and I think for so many of us that this is exactly how the fear of man is going to play out in our lives, just like Abraham in this sinful desire for safety and security and comfort that would lead you to use other people to get to it. But, but that's not the only way that fear of man plays out in our lives. So often the fear of man plays out in being a people pleaser, in, in just being unable to make any decision without considering the approval of others and how it's going to affect this. Uh, and so what I want us to do real quickly is to uh, just borrow a list of questions from Ed Welch's book to work through this and wrestle with whether or not this is something that we struggle with too. And so these questions are going to come up on the screen, and as we walk through these, I want you to wrestle honestly with this uh, and see whether or not this describes you. And so first, do you constantly overcommit because you're afraid to say no? 
are, are you af- because you're afraid that other people would be mad at, mad at you if you said no? Are you constantly worried about what others think of you? Do you easily become jealous of other people? Do you constantly compare, yourselves to other, compare yourself to others? And that can be good or bad. That can be good in the sense of, well, I'm way better than that person. Thank God I'm not like that person. Or it could be, I'll never be as good as that person. I'll never be as talented as that person. I'll never be as smart as that person. Do you constantly compare yourself to others? Are you easily embarrassed? Do you avoid people? Do you fear rejection and being made fun of? Do you feel the need to be somebody significant? Do you lie or compromise to fit in? Do you ever confess sin to others? And I'm not just talking here about the cute, respectable sins, like, oh, I woke up at four this morning instead of three to fast and read my Bible and pray, so I only got to do it for three hours instead of four hours. Like, no, real sin struggles. Do you confess real, actual sin to others? And then finally, how are you doing with evangelism? Do you talk about Jesus with anybody else? Do you share the good news of Jesus? I think that if we were honest with each other this morning, that most, if not all of us, wrestle with this to some degree or another. That uh, just like Abraham, we struggle with the fear of man. Like, man, this, is, I, this hits the nail on the head for me. As I went through this list and worked through it earlier in the week, I was just like, yep, 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 dang it, that's me, that describes me, yep. Like, if I'm honest, I think this is probably one of the primary sin struggles I struggle with, one of the besetting sins in my life, but just like Abraham, who keeps coming back to this sin and giving into it every time the heat turns up and the pressure is on. And so we're going to come back to this issue of the fear of man towards the end of our time together this morning, Uh, but the good news is that even in the midst of Abraham's fear and faithlessness, God remains faithful. And it's actually that good news that has the power to overcome our slavery to the fear of man. This is the next big track and theme we see in this passage, the faithfulness of God. And so uh, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem, fully intending to have her as one of his wives or concubines and sleep with her, and that'll just be the end of the story. Like God's promises will all be for nothing, the story will be over, and we can all go home. Right, but the good news is that God is bigger than our sins and failures, and he can still work in spite of our sins and our failures. Like, no matter how hard Abraham and Sarah try to screw this up, he's going to make sure that it comes to pass. Like, Abraham lies. He doesn't tell the truth about God. He doesn't tell the truth about his wife, so God will just do his job for him. Because Abimelech takes Sarah, but then God comes to him in a dream and tells him the truth of what's going on. And I love the conversation that they have after this. Abimelech's like, hey, I'm in the right here. Like, I didn't touch her, and they lied to me. They said that they were brother and sister, and God's like, you're right. You are in the right. That's why I kept you from sinning against me. That's why I didn't let you touch her. I was the one orchestrating and in control of this whole thing. And God orchestrates this entire event so that Sarah is given back to Abraham, and it is abundantly clear that Abimelech has not touched her, that if she ends up having a son, it will be because it was through Abraham and not through Abimelech. Like, no matter how hard Abraham and Sarah try to screw this promise up, God just will not let them. He's just too big for that. He's in control, and he will accomplish his his good purposes 
all by himself without any help from us. And so I think the truth of this reality, I think there's a few ways that this should really encourage us that I want to draw out from this text. The first one is that the consistent testimony of the Bible, really one of the main themes, if not the main theme of the Bible, and just story after story after story, is that even when we are fearful and faithless, God remains faithful. That even when we sin and screw up, God does not quit on us. Because if anyone has a reason to get it right by this point, it's Abraham. But even when he blows it again right on the doorstep of these promises, God does not quit on him. God does not change his mind about him. God does not decide to work through someone else. You see, because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus chooses all the wrong people. Jesus does not just love those who are good enough and those who have kind of gotten their acts together and have their lives straightened out because if he did, there would be no one for him to love. But he loves absolute losers and sinners like Abraham and you and me who continue to get it wrong, who continue to mess up, who continue to fall flat on our face and give in to the same sin decades later, which I think means there is great hope for us. Because the reality is that if God chooses you and sets his love on you, you're just not going to be able to stop him from saving you. You're just not going to be able to make him change his mind about you. You're not going to be able to out his love for you. Your stupidity and foolish decisions aren't even going to be enough to keep him from using you and accomplishing his good purposes in and through your life. He's just that big. He's just that in control because, listen, God's promises towards us and his promise to save us and transform us and use us is not dependent on us keeping up our side of the deal. It's ultimately grounded in God's character. God is immutable. That means he does not change. And so when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. If he chooses you, there's no take backs. That's why Malachi 3, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, Israel, are not consumed. Look, if God was like us, if he was like everybody else, when we showed off our great ability to be foolish and faithless and continue to get it wrong, he would decide we're not ever going to keep up our end of the deal, and he would choose to work through someone else. But as 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Our status as God's sons and daughters is not dependent on our ability to be good enough. It's dependent on God's faithfulness to save and keep his promise, and he cannot deny himself. So if he chooses you, he's going to keep you. He's going to transform you. He is going to lose you, use you. Like, listen, this is great comfort for our hearts. This is a pillow to lay your head down on at night. God chooses to love and use and transform absolute losers and sinners like Abraham and you and me because when he does this, he does it as 1 Corinthians 1 says, so that he can use what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. So that he can use what's weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. So that he can use what's low and despise the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that are so that no one would boast in men. 
so that no one would boast in themselves. Because when God saves and he uses and he transforms losers like Abraham and you and me, it puts his power and glory on display because no one's confused on who's actually doing the work. Like maybe you could think this before we walk through Abraham's story, but if you've walked with us through Abraham's story, I know that you cannot be thinking that these promises are coming to pass because Abraham is awesome. No, it's because God is awesome and God is putting his great power and grace on display in Abraham's life because he chooses and uses losers and screw-ups and misfits, and that gives us great hope. And so that's the first thing. A a second encouragement I think we can draw out from this reality is that this story is just one more example that salvation is by God's grace. It is not about our morality and works. The promises of God do not come to pass by our morality because let's just be honest with each other, Abimelech is the morally better person in this story, is he not? Like Abraham lies, he cheats, he deceives, he doesn't tell the truth about God, he doesn't give a crap about his wife Sarah. But when Abimelech is confronted, he gets up early in the morning, he gets everybody together, he tells them what they have to do. He gives Sarah back to Abraham and he gives lavish gifts to Abraham to prove her innocence that he did not touch her. In contrast to Abraham, he's straightforward, he's honest, he's quick to correct his mistake when he is confronted. He is way better than Abraham in this story. And so this story is in here right before God fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah, just so one more time we would not get confused that that God's promises are not coming through Abraham because Abraham is a pretty good guy. It is not as if God was looking for a few good men and then all of a sudden he was like, oh my gosh, who's this Abraham guy? He is awesome. I've got to get that guy on my team. I could definitely work through a go-getter like that guy. No, Abraham was an idolater. He was a pagan moon worshiper when God called him. And even after God called him, he shows consistent episodes of stupidity and faithlessness just like the one here. I mean, it seems like for every few genuine steps forward in faith that Abraham takes, he follows it up with one step back. For all of his great moments of faith, so often his faith seems so small. And even on the doorstep, when God has put a time limit on these promises, he's still like, no, I I can't trust God in this. I got to do, I got to put, take this thing into my own hands. It's worked out well for me every other time before. You see, this story is in here so that God can just put it up on a big neon sign for us that it's by his grace and not by works. And God is doing this for us because he knows that all of us are legalists at heart. All of us uh, are just going to tend, no matter how often we hear the message of grace and the good news of the gospel, we're all just going to tend to default back into reading the Bible and treating our relationship with God like it's about morality and performance because we so badly want to be able to say that we've earned it, even if just a little bit. We so badly want to be able to say that we can boast in ourselves, that we have something to boast in. But, but God does this to show us that, that this is not coming through Abraham because he's a pretty decent guy. He's not. And the crazy thing about this is that God puts this story here right on the doorstep where Abimelech is morally better than Abraham to show us that it's by God's grace and it's not by works. Because look, 
Abimelech is the morally better person in this story, but yet it's still Abraham that God has chosen to bless the world. It's still Abraham that God is using as the vehicle to bring salvation and blessing to the world. And I think this explains a weird element of the text, which is when God comes to Abimelech in the dream, he says he needs to have Abraham pray for him, and then God will heal him because Abraham is God's prophet. And we read this, and we're like, some prophet, right? But, but if Abimelech is morally better than Abraham, if he's in the right, and Abraham is in the wrong in this situation, why does Abraham need to pray for him? Well, it's because God is showing us that the way to himself is not through morality, it's through grace. Like, the promise, the blessing in coming to Abimelech here is not coming because Abraham is a really good guy. It's coming because God has chosen him and chosen to show grace to him. And Abimelech needs God's grace just as much as Abraham does. Abraham is the channel, he's the conduit of God's grace to a pagan king in this story because God has chosen him, because he loves him, not because he's awesome. And so Abraham, he prays for Abimelech, and God heals Abimelech. And not only does he heal Abimelech, he heals every woman uh, in Abimelech's household so that they would be able to bear children again. He had closed all their wombs while Sarah Uh, was in Abimelech's possession. Now, uh, this has to fill Abraham and Sarah with a deep amount of faith to see this, right? To see that after all that they did to try and screw up the promise and prevent it from coming to pass, God still protected Sarah. and, And if he has the power to open up closed wombs and give life to these closed wombs, man, then they've got to believe that maybe, just maybe, He has the power to do this for them as well. And listen, he will. In the very next verse, he will. He will bring this to pass. But I want to come back to this issue of the fear of man that Abraham displays here because I I think this is such a live issue for so many of us. I mean, it is Abraham's besetting sin, the thing that he keeps coming back to time and time again in his life, just like so many of us. Uh, And just like Abraham does here, so often when we wrestle with this sin, we seek out false solutions that are never actually going to be able to fix the problem. And so what many of us do when we seek out the approval and affirmation of others to give us an an identity and that doesn't work, we feel like if we can just get a little bit more of it, then we finally will feel and get what we're chasing after. And, And so we just seek out a little bit more affirmation. We just seek out a little bit more recognition and approval. We just crank the speed up on the treadmill and run a little bit harder because we always feel like we're just one more affirmation, we're just one more compliment, we're just one more recognition away from finally feeling like we're okay, from finally feeling like we measure up and like we matter, but look, it's never going to work. Zero plus zero is still zero, no matter how many times you add more of it. Like, other people's opinions of us and their approval of us was never meant to bear the weight of giving us an identity. And so even if we add more of it, it's never going to be enough for us. And look, it is exhausting to live as if you're on trial every day in the courtroom of other people's opinions of you. That's exhausting. And so since that doesn't work, What most of us then try to do and what the world then tells us to try to do is just to turn in towards ourselves and just to have more self-esteem. And so we 
Our, our problem is that we just don't think highly enough of ourselves. That's why we feel this way. And so you've got to think more of yourself. You've got to think about yourself more. You've got to have good vibes and positive thoughts towards yourself. But let's just level with each other for a second. We've been pumping that into kids at school for decades now. And how is that working out for us? Like, we receive this sort of stuff. Are we a generation of young adults that's just deeply confident in who we are, able to take on the world? No, of course not. We're more insecure than ever. This is not going to be able to fix us just looking at ourselves more because we are sinners. This would be like trying to fix a broken hand by smashing it with a hammer. You're just doing more of what caused the problem in the first place. And so this is another failed solution, but, but the problem with all of this is that we're not actually going to be able to get away from this desire to measure up, to be approved, to be accepted. Even if you say, well, I'm just not going to care about what other people think about me, you will care what other people think about you, because deep down, we were actually made for this. You see, we were made to know and have the approval and the acceptance of the one who matters most. We were made to be fully known and yet at the same time fully loved and accepted by God. You see, because to be fully loved but not fully known feels shallow and fake because you're always going to feel like, well, if they really got to know, know me, if they really knew this part about my life, they wouldn't feel this way about me anymore. Like, they don't actually love me. They love a false version of me because they don't really know me. But, but then on the other hand, to be fully known and yet not fully loved is terrifying because it feels like a rejection of your personhood and who you are, and it's this deep sense that you're not okay and you don't measure up. Uh, be, to be fully known and fully loved, though, at the same time, that's the only thing that can satisfy. And, and look, we know we were made for it. We know we were made for this approval, and we know at one time we all longed for back when we had it in the garden with our first parents, when they were naked and unashamed with nothing to fear, nothing to hide. We long for the approval and delight of God, but we know that we're not in the garden anymore. We are sinners. We know we're not okay. We know we don't measure up. We know we have been separated from God. And there's no way to get back to him on our own. And so ever since this moment, it, our whole lives have just been an exercise in hiding and covering up and projecting and trying to look better than we are and trying to earn this approval from God and from others. And listen, it never works. To be fully known and yet at the same time fully loved and accepted by God is the only thing that can satisfy. But just like Abimelech, we are not good enough to get back to God on our own. We, we can't do enough good things. We can't be religious enough. Just like Abimelech, we need a mediator. We need an intercessor, someone who will stand in the gap for us between us and God and bring us back to God and make us right with God. And listen, the good news is that in Jesus, we have just that. We have just that. First Timothy says that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus came to be this, so just like Abimelech, we have a prophet praying for us, interceding for us so that we might live. But unlike Abraham, this prophet is not weighed down by his own sins and failures and foolishness. No, he is a perfect mediator. 
Jesus came at just the right time into human history. He took on our flesh, and even though he had no sin of his own, he took on himself all of our sin and our rebellion and our failure and our fear of man and paid for it all at the cross. He stood in the gap. He stood in our place for us. He interceded for us between us and God. And he died for our sin, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And Romans 4 tells us that he was raised from the dead for our justification so that we could be justified, counted not guilty, but righteous before God so that we could receive what we were made for. This is what it means to be justified. If you have trusted in Jesus, you've been justified, which means that you are fully known by God. All of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your failure and faithlessness, and yet at the same time, you are completely accepted and fully loved. The verdict over your life has come down, and the verdict is righteous, not guilty, and adopted into the family of God. The verdict has come down, and you're not on probation. You are God's son. You are God's daughter, and you will not lose that. And what Genesis 20 points us to here is the way that Jesus intercedes for us on the basis of that reality. This is actually what Jesus is doing up in heaven right now at this very second, praying for you, interceding for you. Hebrews 7 says that ever since he has been raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he now lives forevermore to intercede for us, to plead the merits of his blood. Listen, this is how much he loves you. He did not just accomplish your salvation on the cross and then go up to heaven to sit on the couch and watch TV until he returns. No, he is right now praying for you, pleading for you. When you sin and you screw up and you fail, when you for the 10,000th time give in to the sin that you said you were done with, he is pleading his blood saying, no, I paid for that sin. They're mine. And listen, he never gets turned down. He never hears a no in heaven. His prayers for you are always effective, even more effective than Abraham's was for Abimelech. Like, listen, look right at me. You you will not grow. You will not be set free from this until you get this. When you sin, when you sin back, when you blow it, when when you do the thing that that you said you would not do ever again, when you do it again for the 10,000th time and, and you fall flat on your face again, even though you know better, When you blow it like that, what is Jesus' face towards you in that moment? What is he doing up in heaven? How is he looking at you? I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not throwing up his hands in disgust. He's not turning his face away from you. He's not saying, did I really choose to save them? Why did I do that? No, he is pleading the merits of his blood over your life, shouting down the voice of the accuser. One person said that Satan might get the first word over the sin in your life, but Jesus gets the last, and Satan has nothing more to say once Jesus has made his case for us. I know I quote this so often, but it's because it's such good news. Romans 8, 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who indeed is pleading for us on the basis of his blood. You see, in and through Jesus, 
we now hear that same word that was spoken over him by the Father at his baptism, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, I am well pleased with you. This is what God speaks over us. Like, Listen, you are not just put up with, you're delighted in. Your sins do not drive Jesus away from you. They actually draw him nearer so that he can plead for you from his heart. He lives to intercede for you, to plead his blood for you, so that even now in this moment, you wouldn't just know that you're forgiven, but you would know that you're accepted, and you would know that you're loved completely, forever, to the end, all the way. And listen, it's actually this good news and this reality that can set us free from the fear of man that enslaves so many of us. Because when this, because the more you and I will get this in our guts, the more we will believe that despite our great sinfulness, we are still fully accepted, approved of, and loved by God anyway. The more we hear that declaration ringing out over our lives, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, I'm well pleased with you. The more you take that into your heart, the more you'll be absolutely untouchable. Because what can someone say about you that's more true than what God has said about you? What could someone do to you that would snatch you out of Jesus' hand? Nothing. Look, you could be fired. You could be rejected. You could be lonely. You could be mocked and made fun of. You could be embarrassed. You could lose all your friends, but you cannot lose the love and delight of God over your life. You cannot be taken out of the family of God. You cannot be ununited to Jesus. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3 says. The only way you could lose your status as a son or a daughter of God, the only way you could lose his love and delight in you over your life is if Jesus does. And and I'll just spoil it for you. That isn't going to happen. That's how united you are with him. That's how secure you are. And so the more you and I will press this into our hearts and get it into our guts, the more we'll be set free to actually love and serve people instead of just using people to try to gain an identity for ourselves. When we live from the settled reality of God's approval of us and his great delight in us, then we don't have to live for the approval of others any longer, and we will increasingly be free. Like, God will be big and people will be small in our lives. Things will be in their proper place. And this is what freedom is. This is what Jesus is holding out to us. Look, the good news of the gospel is that even when we are fearful and faithless, Jesus remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He has won us. He will keep us. He will be faithful to us to the end. The more you look to Jesus and you press that reality into your heart, the more you will walk in freedom. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That though just like Abraham, we are great sinners who can't seem to figure it out and can't seem to get it right and can't seem to stop screwing up in the same ways over and over again. Jesus, thank you that when we quit on you, you do not quit on us. That when we rebel against you, you do not turn from us. And that though we are weighed down by sins and failures and shortcomings, you are not. You are a perfect intercessor, a mediator who lives forevermore to plead your blood for us. And so help us now. 
Help us to take that truth and press it into our hearts so that we might believe, so that we might rest in this, so that we might stop our striving and, and trying to earn it and just rest in what you've done for us. And Jesus, please do this in and among us, even now as we come to respond in your name. Amen.